0: If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Catherine Renee Walker was born on July 22, 1976, and grew up in Albany, New York. She married Army medic Michael Walker in 2003, and like many military families, they moved around often. In 2014, the couple was living in Hawaii on the Ali Military Reservation, and Michael was working in the emergency room at Tripler Army Medical Center in Honolulu. Catherine and Michael had been trying to have children for over a decade, but due to infertility issues, they were unable to and were planning to do in vitro fertilization. However, this would never take place because unbeknownst to Catherine, Michael was having an affair. But this was not his first affair, and he had been unfaithful in the past, including men paying him for sex. In September 2014, Michael met Elsa Jackson through an online dating site and told her he was married and had been for 11 years. At the time of their meeting, Elsa had stopped taking her medicine for her schizoaffective disorder due to a lapse in her health insurance, and Michael would quickly use her unstable mental health to his advantage. Within two weeks of meeting, Michael shockingly told Elsa that he wanted his wife gone, but he couldn't divorce her because of financial concerns and because he stood to receive $400,000 in life insurance money. The couple then began plotting Catherine's murder using a secret code to communicate in person through emails and text messages. On November 14, 2014, Elsa and Michael met up in a gym parking lot and Elsa said she could go through with the murder that night. Sadly, Catherine would be brutally attacked and killed inside her own bedroom that very night. Michael came home at 6:30 the next morning and called 911 to report the murder. It was soon learned that her murder was orchestrated by Michael and implemented by his new love affair, Elsa. In 2015, Elsa pleaded guilty to the murder and admitted that during the attack, she asked Catherine if she forgave her and she replied yes. She also described waiting for half an hour to ensure that Catherine was actually dead. During the investigation into Catherine's brutal murder, detectives found some incriminating and disgusting evidence of a different crime. Michael was found to have child pornography. In 2016, a military court found him guilty of those charges and also for soliciting sex from men after proof was found on several social media sites. Then, in 2017, he was convicted of sexually abusing a child, physically assaulting a child, and wrongfully communicating a threat. He was reduced in rank from sergeant to private, dishonorably discharged, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He would also plead guilty to second-degree murder and would be sentenced to 35 years in prison. Catherine's father said he and his family supported a lower sentence for Catherine's murder and wholeheartedly forgave Elsa. Wendy Jerome was born on November 1, 1970, to parents Marlene and Wayne Jerome. At the age of 14, she lived on Denver Street in Rochester, New York, and was described as petite, intelligent, and an ambitious little girl who loved Steve Perry, the lead singer of Journey. On Thanksgiving Day in 1984, Wendy left home that evening to deliver a birthday card to her friend, Susie Keller. Susie lived nearby on Alexis Street, which was only a few blocks away, and Wendy was supposed to only be gone an hour and return at 8 p.m., which was her curfew. As 8 p.m. rolled by and Wendy was a no-show, her parents became very concerned. They knew that Wendy had arrived safely at her friend's house, so it was on her walk back home that tragedy struck. Not more than a few hours later, a man taking a walk discovered her body only a quarter of a mile from her house in an alcove behind a school. She had been raped and beaten to death. The beating was so bad that poor little Wendy was unrecognizable. Although DNA was collected and preserved from the crime scene, the case would go unsolved for 35 years. Nearly a decade after the murder, her mother Marlene was finally allowed to look at the photos and autopsy report of her daughter's brutally beaten body. Marlene said she had always pictured her daughter's naked and battered body lying out exposed for all the world and first responders to see. She said the thought of her lack of dignity bothered her all those years, but when she was finally shown the photos, she felt comfort. She said she was initially upset because investigators had told her that Wendy was unconscious during the attack, but the report stated otherwise and detailed all of her defense wounds from fighting back. The comfort came when the pictures showed her dressed with her favorite pink jacket placed over her face. The photos also revealed to her mother what investigators had known from the beginning. Wendy had been allowed to get dressed and even tie her shoes before her assailant beat her to death. Also, the cut on her throat was four inches, much smaller than she had imagined. About six years later, the man that found her body, who was 22 at the time, committed suicide. His DNA was compared to items left at the crime scene, and it was not a match. Although he was never a suspect, his hair type was similar to that found at the crime scene, and before calling 911 to report her body, he first visited the home of his friend before they returned to the body. Meanwhile, in the years 2000, 2016, and 2019, the DNA from the semen sample was used to try to identify her killer using advancements in DNA each time. Finally, in 2020, with the use of genetic genealogy, the DNA was linked to Timothy Williams. Williams had moved from Rochester to Melbourne, Florida, soon after the murder. He was charged with her murder, but not the rape due to the statute of limitations. He and Wendy lived near each other at the time of her killing, but did not know each other. Wendy's mom, Marlene, says she's relieved to finally have some answers, but wishes her husband was alive to see an arrest in his daughter's murder. Gloria Suzanne Corzon was born on April 21, 1943. She unfortunately married William Corzon in January of 1967, who went on to physically and mentally abuse her throughout their marriage. Less than one year into their marriage, William was arrested for threatening to kill Gloria and spent some time in a mental institution in Massachusetts where they lived. From 1967 to 1981, authorities were called numerous times for domestic violence, sometimes leading to Gloria being hospitalized. Gloria sought protection orders against William in 1978 and 1980, alleging he had threatened her and beaten her so severely that he had broken some of her bones. However, she always withdrew her complaints before they went to court. Police were called to their home nearly 10 times just between 1976 and 1980, and all the hospitalizations were documented. In 1981, the couple lived in the 2700 block of Pickertown Road in Warrington Township, Pennsylvania, and Gloria worked about six miles away in Horsham, Pennsylvania. On March 6, 1981, Gloria left work never to be seen alive again by her co-workers. Her brother, Ralph Kidder, last spoke to her weeks prior, and her father had tried to call her house several times, but was never able to talk to her. After she disappeared, William gave many conflicting reports about her possible whereabouts. On Mother's Day in 1981, her mother received a Mother's Day card from her. However, it did not appear to be in her handwriting and was strangely signed Gloria Corzon, even though she never used her full name when writing to her family. Four months later, in July of 1981, Gloria's brother reported her missing. Police questioned William, who claimed that she had gone to Florida to visit her aunt. Gloria did have an aunt in Florida, but William had given the police the wrong name. When they questioned her real aunt, she told them she had not seen Gloria in months. All her personal belongings were left behind, including her car, dog, driver's license, credit cards, and thousands of dollars in her bank account. One month before she vanished, Gloria gave her stepfather an envelope, telling him to open it if anything ever happened to her. When she disappeared, He opened the envelope and found it contained a three-page list of assaults Gloria claimed William had inflicted on her. In 1986, investigators dug up the yard of his home looking for Gloria's body. Instead, they only found the remains of her pet dog. While missing, William reported that he didn't know where she could be but continued to forge her signature on tax documents, checks, and greeting cards to make it look like she was still alive. At times, he claimed she returned home for an oil change and in 1987, he said she returned to get her 1968 Jaguar. Then the case was reopened in 2017 and Warrington Police spent two years re-investigating before they finally had enough evidence to take to a grand jury finally in april 2019 the grand jury indicted william he quickly asked authorities if they had found her body that question and the years of abuse and documented injuries to his wife before her disappearance led authorities to charge him with her murder william decided to come clean and confess to what he did he stated that when Gloria arrived home from work that day, they began to argue as usual. He claimed he shot her in self defense after wrestling a gun from her hands. He said he then placed the body in the trash until morning came and then loaded it onto his boat, towed it to an area of the Delaware River near Lambertville, New Jersey, and dumped her body. He was charged with not only a homicide, but also forging Gloria's names on documents along with perjury and solicitation. In 1981, he solicited one of his tenants, Samuel Culp, to kill one of the detectives investigating Gloria's disappearance. Samuel testified before the grand jury and said a patch of concrete in the basement of the couple's home looked newer than the others and he believed this is where Gloria was buried. In 2018, The house was searched with ground-penetrating radar, but her body was not found. However, the foundation in the basement had been disturbed since the home was built. He was sentenced to seven and a half to 15 years in prison. Her loved ones said they knew he was responsible for her disappearance and presumed murder and said they had waited nearly four decades for justice. They only wished they knew where Gloria's remains were so they could give her a proper burial. Antonio Zamaro Rodriguez, a World War II veteran, and his wife Luz raised ten children together along with three of their nephews. In 1984, the couple sold their business in San Benito, Texas, and moved to Cleveland, Texas, where they would get involved with the Cleveland BFW post-1839. They also operated a small Mexican food restaurant from their home and served shift workers who worked at a local plywood mill. They were known to cater to mill workers at odd hours of the day and night and were very well known and beloved by the local Hispanic community for their gracious hospitality. As they aged, Antonio spent much time caring for his disabled and beloved wife. On April 14, 2005, while the family was still grieving the loss of Antonio and Luz's grandson, who was found beaten to death, another tragedy would occur. Their daughter, Carolina Tejada, stopped by Antonio's and Luz's house at 103 Waco Street to make them lunch. When no one came to the door, she assumed that her parents were asleep and let herself in. Once inside, she found a gruesome scene that would change her life forever. Her 80-year-old father was dead on the floor, along with her 77-year-old mother. They had both been beaten and strangled to death, and her mother was tucked neatly in their bed. Police dogs were able to track a suspect's scent across some railroad tracks to a nearby apartment complex, but didn't lead investigators any further. A speck of blood from an unknown suspect was found on a large rug in the couple's home, and a bloody fingerprint was found on the side of a denture container. The motive was unclear because it didn't appear that anything had been taken. A couple of hours later, a man calling himself Troy Stevenson called 911, claiming to have seen the killer. He described the man and said he lived in the Cleveland Square Apartments and was in apartment C-12. Police went to the apartment with bloodhounds and were able to pick up a scent, but the apartment was empty. It took investigators years to track down the man who lived there, and once he was discovered, he was found to have an airtight alibi. During Antonio's last hours, surveillance showed him walking around in a store, but it also generated no leads. Sadly, the case would go cold until 2021, 16 years later. That's when it quickly warmed up after a woman was arrested on a drug charge and convicted, and she had to provide her DNA. Once that DNA was entered into CODIS, it matched the DNA found at the crime scene. Police from Cleveland traveled to Gatesville, Texas, to interview the woman, Shelley Susan Thompson-Lemoyne, but she denied knowing the couple or ever having been in Cleveland. Another DNA sample was collected, and once again, it was a match. 41-year-old Thompson-Lemoyne was then arrested by Texas Rangers outside her parole office and charged in 2022 with both their murders. Eve Helen Wilkowitz was born on April 17, 1959, in Long Island, New York. In 1980, at the age of 20, she worked in Manhattan as a secretary and was living in Bayshore, New York with her boyfriend. On March 22, 1980, she left work and took a train home to her apartment on Long Island. However, she never made it, and three days later, her body was found on the front lawn of a home near her apartment. She had been kidnapped, raped, and strangled to death. Although DNA was collected from the crime scene, the case would go unsolved for the next 42 years. Then, in 2020, the FBI and Suffolk County Police Department began another investigation, but this time with advancements in DNA and genetic genealogy. The following year, in 2021, a match was made to the killer through one of his sons on public ancestry websites. The one son he had not been close to allowed detectives to have his mouth swabbed for his DNA, and it was a match. So investigators exhumed the suspect's body and compared DNA from the 42-year-old rape kit to his remains, and once again it was a match. On March 30, 2022, officials formally announced that Eve's rapist and killer was a criminal named Herbert Rice. Rice died of cancer in 1990 and had lived with his mother just a few houses from the spot where Eve's body was found. He had a criminal record, but it was before DNA was put into CODIS. Sadly, this monster's face was the last thing she saw before he brutally took her life. Eve's younger sister, Irene, thanked investigators for their persistence in solving the case, but said the pain of losing her sister will never go away. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.